Psalm 30. If you're just joining us, we were kind of walking through the Psalms this summer, and we happen to be at Psalm 30 this morning. You can turn there in your Bibles, and if you don't have a Bible, there's a blue one in the seat in front of you that you're welcome to use. And if you don't have a Bible, you're also welcome to keep that one. We would love for you to have a copy of God's Word that you can take home and read and learn more about this God that we love to declare. So this morning we're looking at Psalm 30. So hear the word of the Lord. A Psalm of David, a song at the dedication of the temple. I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord my God, I cried to you for help and you have healed me. O Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. You restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. Sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints, and give thanks to his holy name. For his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. As for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. By your favor, O Lord, you made my mountain stand strong. You hid your face, I was dismayed. To you, O Lord, I cry, and to the Lord I plead for mercy. What profit is there in my death? If I go down to the pit, will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. O Lord, be my helper. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness, that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O Lord my God, I will give thanks to you forever. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Well, the longer I walk with Jesus, one of the things that I become more and more convinced of is our need for the continual reorientation of our hearts. As we go through our days and our weeks, we often find that our hearts are like instruments that start to get a little out of tune. They're just, they're off. Like a guitar where you you can play the same strings even if the guitar is out of tune, but when it's out of tune, it just doesn't sound right. In the same way, our hearts can get to where we can do the same things. You can still come to church, you can still read your Bible, you can go to work, you can talk to your friends, see your family, you can do all the same things, but what comes out of us is just woefully out of tune. And what we need when that happens is to be retuned. That's why we sing and why we love that old hymn that says, tune my heart to sing your praise. So just like if you ever look, and sometimes John's up here before the service, adjusting the strings on his guitar hand to make sure it sounds right. That's what we need God to do every time we gather, to to work in our hearts, to retune and tighten up and reorient our hearts. I've been thinking a lot about that word reorient this week after I came across a really helpful way to think about the different psalms in the Bible. So as we're walking through the psalms, we know there's different types and there's lots of different ways you can group them together. But one way that I found really helpful was this. A writer said you can basically organize them into three different types of psalms. The first type, 
he calls psalms of orientation. These are psalms of praise. When everything is right with the world, everything is oriented correctly. The world is right side up, the sun's shining, all is good. These are psalms of orientation. But then he says there's another group called the psalms of disorientation. These are often either the psalms of lament, when our hearts are aware and recognize something's not right. Something is wrong with the world, and so we lament it and we cry out for justice. Or we recognize something's not right with me, and we cry out for mercy. Either way, there's a fundamental disorientation. Things are not as they ought to be. So you've got orientation, celebrating when all is good and every note is right on key. You've got psalms of disorientation that gives us words for when things are not all good and when they feel disorienting and out of tune. And then the third type of psalms are psalms of reorientation. These are the psalms where things were disoriented and out of tune. The night of sorrow had come and it was dark and long, but in the darkness, God did his redeeming work. And now that the morning of mercy has come, the psalmist's heart has been retuned to sing his praise again. So these are often the psalms of thanksgiving for God, for how God has righted what was wrong and transformed the singer's sorrow into joy. These are songs that celebrate God's reorienting work. So as you think about those three psalms, I'm just curious as we get started, where are you at this morning? How's your heart doing? If you're anything like me, could you use God's reorienting work in you? Wouldn't you love to have God retune your heart this morning? Well, that's what Psalm 30 is in our Bibles for. It's one of these reorientation psalms. And as we look at it together this morning, we're going to be reoriented on the truth that with our God, no matter how dark the night, joy always comes with the morning. So here's how the psalm breaks down. It breaks down into three sections. We're going to look in verses 1 to 3 at my praise, in verses 4 and 5 at my invitation, and verses 6 to 12 at my story. So David's writing this, so you can think of it from, from his perspective. It's David's praise, David's invitation, David's story. So let's look first at David's praise in verses 1 to 3. He says, I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I cried to you for help and you have healed me. O Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. You restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. So the first note David starts off here is one of praise. Right out of the gate, he starts off by telling God that he will extol him. Now what does that mean? We don't use that word every day. So what does it mean to extol God? Well, to extol means to lift up, to raise. So the goal, David says, here's what I'm going to do, God. I'm going to lift you up in your name. I want it to get up as high as it can, as it were, and so to show it off and say, look at who God is. Do you see him? Do you see what he's done? David says, that's what I'm going to do. Now, why is he going to lift God up in worship? Well, he tells us. In fact, he rattles off five things the Lord has done for him. 
five reasons why he will extol God. Now before we look at what those five are, just a quick thought. Do you come to worship with reasons? When you come through these doors, do you stop to think, why are you here? Is it just because, well, it's because it's Sunday at 10 o'clock. That's, that's what we do, Pastor. 10 o'clock, we show up. Is that the reason that you're here? Because worship that's birthed only out of routine will be flat and lifeless. But worship that's built on reasons will be earnest and joyful and life-giving to your soul. Worship that comes already loaded up on and mindful of all the ways that God has shown his goodness and mercy to us, those people will encounter the God they've come to praise. So when we come remembering all that God has done for us, it changes the way we start our service. We call it a call to worship. And if you come with reasons, you come mindful of all that God's done for you, it changes that interaction from coaxing. Come on, guys, worship guys come on let's worship instead it becomes an unleashing where as it were we were in here just leaning over the starting line the tapes holding us back and we're just waiting and it's as though we finally give each other permission and say ready go and we just worship that's what the call to worship is meant to do it's meant to get us up to the starting line and saying okay we ready to do this do you remember what God has done this week do you remember his goodness, his mercy, his kindness, his faithfulness, his gentleness, his love for you? Do you remember that? Are you ready to show him that? Okay, here we go. That's a call to worship. And what Dave is doing here is he says, when I come to worship, I'm bringing my reasons with me. So what are they? What are David's reasons? What does he extol God for? First, he says, you've drawn me up. Now that word is used to describe someone drawing up water from a deep well. So the picture is just like someone would send a bucket way down deep into the deep, deep darkness to gather up water and to draw it up out of the well. David's saying, that's what God did for me. God came down into the deep, deep darkness where I was and he pulled me out of that. Second, the Lord has not let his foes rejoice over him. So we don't know what's going on here. We just know that David's got some enemies and they want to see him fail and be utterly destroyed. And they thought they had him. They're ready to celebrate and have a party, but God didn't let them get the victory over him that they wanted. Instead, he spared David from his enemies and their gloating. Third, when David cried to God for help, it says God healed him. As we sang earlier, when you cry to him, he hears your voice. Now, we don't know in this psalm if this healing was from a physical sickness or not. It very well could have been. David might have been so sick that he's on the, the cusp of death and God brings him back from the brink. Could have been. Or it could also have been a healing of his heart that was sick with sin. We see David talk this way in Psalm 41.4. He says, As for me, I said, O Lord, be gracious to me. Heal me, for I have sinned against you. There David asked God to do the very healing that God has offered to do in places like Jeremiah 3, where God says, Return, O faithless sons, I will heal your faithlessness. 
So there's both physical healing and there's a healing for our hearts. Now, well, how does this healing of a heart take place? Through the death of the suffering servant in our place. Isaiah 53 says, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. So what kind of healing is David talking about in Psalm 30? Is it physical? Is it spiritual? The answer is, we don't know. And I think that's on purpose. Because the whole situation is not specific so that the suffering it describes can be related to and understood by any of God's people in any time. So whatever you're facing this morning, like if it was very specific and said when David faced this general and this army on this day and this battle, you'd be like, I don't get that. That's not at all like my life. But when he leaves it open enough, you say, yeah, I get that, David. I've been there. So that whatever you're facing this morning, God can draw you up out of the deep darkness you're finding yourself in. He can keep your enemies from rejoicing over you, and he can heal you no matter what kind of healing you might need. Then David goes on. He paints this even more graphic picture of how bad his situation was in verse 3. There he says that God brought up his soul from Sheol and restored him to life from among those who go down to the pit. The picture here in verse 3 is nothing short of resurrection. David's saying, I was as good as dead and God brought me up. I was standing in line, headed toward the pit, along with these others, but God plucked me out and restored me to life. So what David wants us to see here in verses 1 to 3 is that his situation was incredibly desperate. But when he cried to God for help, God reached down and healed and restored him when it looked impossible. That's why he praises and extols his God. Because of the miraculous ways God had snatched him from death and destruction and restored him to life. Then in verses 4 and 5, David's not just content to praise God by himself. You know, you could read verses 1 to 3 and maybe he's sitting at home having a coffee, doing his quiet time. He's just writing in his journal. I'm so glad of what God has done for me. But then he gets to verses 4 and 5. He's like, no, I've got to go to church. I've got to be with the people of God. He can't contain this joy. So he invites the rest of God's people to join him in worship. Verse 4, sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints, and give thanks to his holy name. For his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. So David invites his fellow saints to praise and thank God with him. And remember, when he says, O you his saints, he's not talking about some famous religious people with mythical powers, right? We know that. That's not what a saint in the Bible is. He's talking about fellow members of the covenant community. He's talking about people like you, and me, his fellow worshipers. Brothers and sisters, I don't want you to ever forget that sacred name by which you are called. If you are in Christ, you are, oh, you, his saints. 
Paul says in Romans and 1 Corinthians, he says, you are loved by God and called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter your age, your education, your career, or how well you did at reading your Bible and spending time in prayer this week. None of that determines your status as a saint. If you call upon the name of the Lord Jesus to save you from your sins and to satisfy your soul, you bear the honorable and glorious title of, oh, you, his saints. That is yours by faith in Jesus. What a privilege. And what does David invite his fellow saints to do? To sing praise and give thanks to his holy name. Why? Well, notice again, he has a reason. He doesn't just show up and say, just sing because, you know, God's, I don't know, God's good or something. Like he says, no, let me tell you why you should praise God and give thanks to his holy name. And he shows us by setting up this pair of contrasts. He's like, here's why you should praise him. I'm going to hold up two things and I want you to see the difference. First, he compares God's anger to his favor. He's saying, yes, God does get angry over sin and faithlessness. David's not denying that. But for his redeemed people, God's anger is not in equal proportion to his favor. They're both there, but they are not equal. They're, they're on a scale. They're not balancing out. His anger is for a moment. His displeasure doesn't get the last word in the life of his people. While his anger is but for a moment, what do we see about his favor? His favor is for a lifetime. And do you see the heart of your God here? This is what David's saying. He's saying, you need to see God. You need to see what he's like. He's, this God, he said, he's slow to anger, but he's abounding in steadfast love and mercy. This God, he waits to be gracious to you. Nowhere in the Bible does it say he waits to be angry with you. No, 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 no. He waits to be gracious to you. In Isaiah 54, God says this, in overflowing anger, for a moment, I hid my face from you. But with everlasting love, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. In overflowing anger, for a moment, I hid my face from you. But with everlasting love, I will have compassion on you. Dads, Here's a great Father's Day application for us. Don't you want to be a dad like this? One where your kids know that yes, daddy gets upset when I disobey and when there's sin and there are fatherly consequences. But oh, do they also know that daddy's unearned favor and love for them is for a lifetime. That no matter what they do, those are not going to cancel out. Yes, daddy might get angry for a moment, but his favor and his love on me is for a lifetime. Dads, that our favor and our love and our grace to our kids would be so out of proportion to our anger over their wrongs. Would they never have to wrestle with, I don't know if the scales balance, they would say, are you kidding me? Yeah, my dad gets angry when things go wrong, but oh, his love for me is so, so much more. That's how our Heavenly Father is toward us. So that first contrast is between God's momentary anger and lifelong favor. 
The second contrast he holds up is between weeping and joy. Weeping, it says, may tarry for the night. Now, tarry for the night. Again, it's words we don't typically use. So what does that mean? Well, the picture here is of someone coming to spend the night at your house. It's the idea that sorrow and weeping are like this unwanted house guest that just drops by uninvited and they come in with an overnight bag and start fixing up a bed on your couch, right? If you've ever been there, it's, it's a little uncomfortable and it's awkward. If you've ever suffered, you know what this picture is like. Suffering shows up and you don't ask for it. You certainly didn't invite them to come over. It just shows up at your door unannounced. And as much as you hope that the pain and the hardship of whatever it is you're going through, you're hoping that they're just popping by for a quick visit. You'll, you'll get through it and they'll be on their way. That's what you hope for. But too often, it comes on in for the night. As the night wears on, you think, okay, they're going to leave any minute now, right? Surely it's getting late. They got to be getting going. But then you see them start to brush their teeth and lay out the blankets. And you realize... They're not leaving. And if you've ever suffered, sometimes it can be just like that. Where you think, okay, this is not the way I would have planned today. Okay, maybe this, this week is just a weird week. Okay, this month is hard. Okay, surely this is going to be over soon, right? I mean, it's, it's got to be getting going any time now. But then the longer you look, you realize it's staying. It's spending the night. And when you experience that, you don't know how long things will be this way. You don't know how things will change or even if they'll change. When you're in a night like that, when you've got this unwanted guest who's spending the night, the darkness can feel so inescapable and unending. But what we see here is that no matter how long the night Morning always comes. Into the deepest darkness, God always brings the dawn. Psalm 112 says, Light dawns in the darkness for the upright. Psalm 46 says of his people, God will help her when morning dawns. God doesn't leave his people suffering in the darkness. He comes with help and healing like a sunrise. Like Last week, we talked about this in our small group, how in Psalm 29, we see the God of glory thunder and how these thunderstorms are meant to show us something that's true about God, his power and his might. David looks at creation and says, that reminds me of this. Well, have you ever thought that in the same way that God uses thunderstorms to show us how powerful he is, have you ever thought about the simple fact that when you wake up and you watch that sun break the horizon, that's him showing you that, hey, after every night, I bring the morning. Every day. Because I'm a compassionate God. I won't let suffering have the last word. Every single time. Have you ever wondered why it starts off in Genesis 1, there was evening and there was morning. Evening didn't end the day. Morning came after evening in the beginning and so it shall ever be. And when we see this picture of nighttime giving way to morning. Lamentations 3 is one of the best pictures of this in the Bible. Now if I say Lamentations 3, my guess is 
you know the good part. All right, you priority, you're reciting it in your head, you know where we're headed. But if you start at the beginning of Lamentations 3, man, it is one of the darkest, bleakest pictures in the Bible. I'm going to give you just a, a taste of what the writer's experiencing. He says, I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. He has driven and brought me into darkness without any light. In other words, he's experiencing God's anger and he's in the night of sorrow. He says, my soul is bereft of peace and I have forgotten what happiness is. Don't you love that the Bible, it gets the world you and I live in? I mean, have you been there where you're just like, I don't even know what happiness is anymore. It's been so long since I felt it or even like felt it deep enough to know that, yeah, that I'm really happy. It's in your Bibles. But what happens after you read these almost 20 verses of stuff just like that, you see that as dark as that night of weeping is, morning is coming. And so he says this, he says, but this, the same guy who said, I'm under the rod of his wrath and I forgot what happiness is, he says, but this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. That's the steadfast love of the Lord. It never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new what? Every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And then he goes on. And listen to how he talks about this. For the Lord will not cast off forever. But though he cause grief momentarily, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. He will cause grief momentarily. But for a lifetime, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. Why? For he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. This is the heart of our God. Like a father, he will discipline his people for our good. But did you hear that he does not afflict from his heart? In other words, that's not what he delights to do. Just like I said, nowhere does it say he waits to be angry. He does not afflict from his heart. So what does God delight to do? What makes him happy? Well, in Jeremiah 32, he tells us, he says, I will rejoice in doing them good with all my heart and all my soul. Like a dad, I can speak from experience that as a dad, I don't, I don't get any joy of saying, all right, discipline, here we go. I don't get excited about that. It doesn't like bring a smile to my face. That, like, no, like, do I discipline? Yes, because I love my girls. But what I love to do, what does put a smile on my face, what gets me going is when I get to show them how much I love them, when I get to wrap them in big old hugs, when I get to make them laugh, when I get to just see the smiles on their face, that's what I love to do. And God's saying the same thing. Yes, I will discipline you in your sin, but I don't afflict you from my heart. Don't get me wrong. Don't misunderstand who I am, people. It's not that that's my delight. My delight is to do you good. And I'll do that with all my heart and all my soul. That's who our God is. And that's why David invites the saints to praise God with him because God's heart is such that momentary weeping may come for the night, but joy comes with the morning and the last a lifetime. 
So David opens by praising God for all the ways he's raised him up and restored him. Then he invites the rest of God's people to join on in and praise because of who our God is. Now for the rest of the psalm, he recounts his own story in a little more detail for us. And there's a movement through David's experience with God. And I want to follow that movement in these three steps, kind of using his own imagery. In verses 6 and 7, I think we see David in the twilight of pride. In verses 8 to 10, he's in the night of sorrow. But by verses 11 and 12, he's in the morning of joy. He moves through twilight into night into morning. So let's look first at the twilight of pride. How did David get into this trouble? We know that he's, a, he's celebrating that God has rescued him from trouble. But how did he get into trouble in the first place? Now we know from the Bible that suffering is not necessarily nor always connected to our sin. But it can be. And in this situation, David knows that he was no righteous sufferer. He's not Job who was just minding his own business, trusting the Lord, and then things happened to him. No, David knows he got himself into this mess. Verses 6 and 7 tell us what happened. Verse 6 says, As for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. Now, at first, it doesn't sound too bad. Until we start to unpack, what, what is he saying here? What happened here is that as David's looking around, and things are going pretty well. His kingdom's flourishing. He feels comfortable, secure, and successful. That word prosperity usually has a connotation of ease. That life is easy for him. And as David enjoyed his ease and how well things are going, he starts to get self-confident. He tells himself, I shall never be moved. In other words, no one can stop me. I'll never fail. I'll never fall. His pride convinced him that he was the one responsible for the good life that he was enjoying. In his heart, he may not have said it with his mouth, but in his heart he said, I did this. He looks around at his life, the good things he has, the relationships he enjoys, the status, the responsibilities, the privilege, all of it. He says, Man, am I awesome. And he figures, if I built this, well, then I can hold on to it. Who's going to take it from me? Nothing could bring him down. In his pride, he forgot who had given him everything he had. He was like the Israelites when they entered the promised land. You remember Moses warned them that they'd be tempted to be just like this. Here's what, God's, what God said through Moses to the Israelites. He says, take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and statutes, which I command you today. Lest when you have eaten and are full and you've built good houses and live in them and when your herds and your flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, be careful lest then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water, who brought you water out of the flinty rock, 
who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and test you to do you good in the end. Beware, lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers. Just like Israel was warned about, just like all God's people are warned about throughout the scripture, David has forgotten that behind all his prosperity and all the good stuff in his life was the grace of God. He sees the, he sees the gifts, but he's completely lost sight of the giver. And now they don't even seem like gifts. Now they seem like his just reward. He sounds a lot like the wicked in Psalm 10. There we read, In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there's no God. His ways prosper at all times. He says in his heart, I shall not be moved. Throughout all generations, I shall not meet adversity. It's exactly what David says. David is prospering and he says in his heart, I shall not be moved. And it clarifies, it basically says, I'm not going to run into trouble. Any trouble I run into, I'll get myself out of because of who I am and what I have. And don't we all face this danger? We may not be wealthy, powerful people in one sense, but something goes well in our lives. We get on a good run where things are going well at work. You get a promotion. Your relationships, your, your marriage is going well. Your, your kids, your kids are just rocking it. You're starting to feel like, I am A-plus parent. I'm a pretty awesome husband. I mean, I've been doing more. People at church have been noticing that I'm involved. I mean, every section of my life, whatever you touch, I've got that Midas touch right now. It's all turned into gold. And you can subtly start to think, I did this. This is me. We can start to take credit in our hearts for the way our lives are and believe it was our power and the might of our hands that got us this life. And we forget 2 Corinthians 4, 7 that says, what do you have that you did not receive? The answer is nothing. Well, David also began to realize this. Because while at first he perceived that his success was all his doing, he soon saw the reality of things in verse 7. There he says, By your favor, O Lord, you made my mountain stand strong. You hid your face, I was dismayed. He's saying it was by God's favor that David's kingdom really stood strong. He's saying, whoa, 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 whoa. It wasn't me. It was by your favor, God, that you made my mountain stand strong. God's grace made me who I am, and it gave me what I have. God, you were my security. And then what happened? When God turned away, it all fell terrifyingly apart. That word dismayed sounds so tame. You hid your face and I was dismayed. Oh, kind of a little sad face, emoji, nothing too powerful. But that word, that's, I think it's a horrible translation. It's, it's, I was terrified. I was in a panic, is how it's translated elsewhere. When God turned his face away, his life starts crumbling 
crumbling down around him because the one that upheld it said, all right, let's see how you do on your own. And things started to fall apart. And David's heart just says, that's what happens when God turns his face away. So in verses 6 and 7, David might have felt the sunshine, right? Things are going well, but because of his pride and self-confidence, night was coming. That's why I call it the twilight of pride. So we see that night of sorrow that's coming in verses 8 and 10. There he says, To you, O Lord, I cry, and to the Lord I plead for mercy. What profit is there in my death if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. O Lord, be my helper. And I want you to notice what a change from verse 6. From the bravado of verse 6, I shall never be moved, to I plead for mercy. Same guy. David's suffering has humbled him and exposed what was true all along that he is weak, but God is strong. So rather than relying on his own power and strength, now David runs to God for help and mercy. And friends, this is one reason, not the only, but one reason God sends us trials like this. So that you and I don't get dangerously at ease. Because God knows how perilous it is for our hearts to get too secure and too comfortable and start thinking, we don't really need God after all. God loves us too much to let us drift down that river of pride and self-confidence and go crashing over the falls of unbelief and destruction. So he uses trials to wake us up to the reality of our own weakness and need for him. Sorrow and suffering are God's alarm clocks to rouse us from the slumber of self-confidence and call us to repentance and humility. And that's exactly what they do for David here. David was at the height saying, look at what I did. And now it all came crashing down and he wakes up. His heart is being reoriented. He's no longer confident in himself, but now he's looking to the Lord for mercy. He's feeling the night of sorrow. He feels close to death and is pleading with the Lord to be his helper. But then in verses 11 and 12, after the weeping has tarried through the night of sorrow, Joy comes with the morning. Verse 11. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness, that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O Lord my God, I will give thanks to you forever. When David cried to God, he heard his voice. And God utterly transforms David's sorrow into joy. Do you see that? He turns his mourning into dancing. What's what's so amazing here is that it's not just swapping one for the other. Somehow God turns the very sorrows into joy. The sorrows served the joy. What caused pain and sorrow, God transforms into the very source of joy. Friends, this is what God does for us over and over in the gospel. Listen to what Jesus tells his disciples about his pending death and resurrection in John 16. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful. You will have a night of sorrow, 
but your sorrow will turn into joy. And in case we're not sure, what do you mean? He said, I'll give you a picture. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also, you have sorrow now. But I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. Jesus is saying that the pain and sorrow of labor literally gives birth to the joy of the woman. There is a direct connection that's not like she was sad about something for a while and then she was happy about something else for a while. The thing that caused her pain became the source of her joy. And while her pain was intense and hard, ladies, you can say amen. Okay. It was only momentary compared to the lifetime of joy in her child. It says she doesn't even remember it in comparison In the same way, Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 4, this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. Do you see how both Jesus and Paul are saying the same thing as David here in Psalm 30? He's saying there really is affliction. It really is hard. There are nights of sorrow. He says, but it's light and momentary compared to the eternal weight of glory and joy that our suffering is preparing for us. It's preparing. It's doing the work. In the same way, the labor is the pathway to the joy in the childbirth. He's saying the sufferings and sorrows for you, Christian, are the pathway to your joys in Jesus. If you're suffering this morning, Christian, hear this. God makes your sorrow the servant of your joy. The night of weeping will not last. God is bringing the morning and he will transform your sorrow into joy. He will turn your mourning into dancing. So this morning, where are you in this story? Are you in the twilight of pride? Have you grown confident in yourself and forgetful of God's all-supplying grace? Or maybe are you walking through the night of sorrow? Has weeping made itself at home for the night, and you are crying out to God for help and mercy? Wherever you are, friends, in Jesus, there is a morning of mercy and joy that's coming for us. In fact, I want to end by seeing this psalm through another lens through the lens of Jesus. Now we know that David wrote this song, Psalm 30. But as he wrote it, he saw another. In Psalm 16, David writes about a lot of these same ideas. In fact, I'd encourage you this afternoon, go home and read Psalm 16 and see how much it compares to Psalm 30. In Psalm 16, he writes about his absolute dependence on God, the promise of joy in God, and the confidence that he would not be left in the grave. Psalm 16.10 even says, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. That's David talking, and it sounds a lot like Psalm 30, verse 3. 
But listen to Peter talk about that verse in Acts chapter 2. Peter says, Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, David foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up. So Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is looking back at Psalm 1610 saying, when David writes this, he's not just telling his story, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Messiah. That he would not be abandoned to the grave. So what might that mean for Psalm 30? Well, put this psalm in the mouth of Jesus. And what do we see? We see Jesus praising God because God drew him up and did not let his foes rejoice over him. We see Jesus cry to God for help and the Father heal him. We see God bring up his soul from the grave and restore him to life. As Jesus took all our sins and our sorrows and bore them to the cross for us, he experienced the full anger of God. God hid his face and Jesus was so dismayed that he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus suffered all that we should suffer for our proud self-confidence and our arrogant ignoring of God. And when he died, darkness covered the land. Weeping and sorrow tarried for the night. But as the sun rose on Sunday, joy came with the morning. Then came the morning. His buried body began to breathe. Out of the silence, the roaring lion declared, The grave has no hold on me. Jesus defeated sin and death so that now no one can take our joy. So let there be dancing in the darkness and let our song break through the night. Lift your voice and sing that Christ is king. Why? Because Jesus is alive. Jesus shows us, friends, here's the point. Jesus shows us on the cross, in the grave, and through his resurrection, he shows us once and for all that for those who belong to him by faith, the night of sorrow will always Give way to the morning of joy. Morning by morning, new mercies we will see. Weeping may tarry for the night. Friend, no matter how dark that night may be, joy will come with the morning. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you. Thank you for that truth. Thank you that you showed it to us first and foremost in the resurrection of your son. Lord, there was never a darker, more hopeless night than when your son was put in a tomb and lay there and our hopes were buried with him. But God, you showed us that that's never the last word. That after evening always comes morning. And with morning there are new mercies. So God, I pray for my brothers and sisters here who are in that night of sorrow. 
where it's dark and it's deep and they don't know how long this night will go on. God, I pray that you would encourage them and sustain them with the hope that you will bring joy in the morning. And God, for those of us who are who are looking at our lives and things are good and we are prone to rely on ourselves, would you grant us humility and repentance? God, would we realize that all that we have is a gift, that all that we need, your hand has provided. It's not great is our ability, but great is your faithfulness. So God, I pray that wherever we find ourselves today, would you use Psalm 30 to bear the fruit of hope and joy in our lives? Would we be encouraged by the truth that morning by morning, your mercies are new? We pray that you would do this in us. In Jesus' name, amen.